Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Sarah Kylie Watson. And I'm Lee Cowart. Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Listeners, for those of you who don't know, Lee is one of my favorite science writers and the author of an incredible new book. Lee, would you like to tell us uh, a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. Um, My book, uh, Hurts So Good, The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose, is about all of the ways that humans consent to suffer for fun. When we think about masochism, we think about like BDSM and sex and Fifty Shades, but actually opting into aversive experiences is very human and very normal. So the book covers everything from hot peppers to polar plunges to ballet dancers, ultra marathons, all of this deliberate suffering. And it asks, what the f*** are we doing this for and what do we get out of it? (laughs) Why is this such a thing? Um, I personally am an inveterate masochist, and so it was a huge labor of love and (laughs) suffering to do the reporting for this, and I am just so happy to be here today. Amazing. So on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then, once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Sarah Kylie, what's your tease? So, this week I'm going to be talking about teen angst, but the canine edition. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, Lee, how about your tease? Um, I'm I'm going to talk about how pain is always, always, always subjective in ways that might surprise you. Mm. Sounds intriguing. My tease is that I am going to talk about the scientists and high society ladies who used radiation to grow mutant flowers and veggies. That sounds fun. I'm excited about that one. (laughs) Should we start there? I'm happy to roll us right into it. (laughs) Yes, do it. Well, um... So I have to say that uh, this topic is one I have known about for a few years. There was a great 99PI episode about it. I will definitely link to that uh, in the article for this episode on popsci.com slash weird. Uh, But I've been thinking about it recently in particular because um, I just saw Guillermo del Toro's new noir film, Nightmare Alley. Uh, Me too. (laughs) Which, (laughs) that was really a film that I was like, wow, he really went for the noir in this noir. I was very, it was a real bummer, but I I love his his work. So uh, I was glad to be so bummed. Um, But it largely takes place in an early 20th century circus. And that made me think of one of my... um, most favorite and also most disturbing books, Geek Love by Catherine Dunn. Um, 
Shout out to my middle school English teacher who was reading Geek Love while I was in her seventh grade English class and definitely like sideways recommended it to me. And good thing I didn't <laughs> read it until a few years later, Caroline. Uh, but <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> but, oh uh, you know, that's what you get for being a precocious youth, I suppose. Um, anyway, Geek Love, very intense and, and weird um, and fraught book but uh some of its characters talk about being inspired by the concept of atomic gardening very roundabout way to get to my topic but i just felt like i needed to shout out all of the disturbing media that helped me get to this very actually pretty pedestrian fact um so most listeners probably know that during World War II, the Manhattan Project figured out how to harness nuclear chain reactions to commit unspeakably horrifying acts of mass murder and war. But in the early 1900s, uh, when scientists were just starting to really understand radioactivity and there wasn't a giant war to worry about, nuclear science had a much more fantastical and optimistic following. Uh, on previous episode of The Weirdest Thing, we've talked about how, of course, this led to some very dangerous and misguided nonsense, like irradiating slippers so they could glow in the dark. Oh um, <laughs> good stuff. Um, aged very well. But I'm talking about also like the broader idea um, that understanding nuclear physics would give us unlimited energy, unlimited food, that it could make resources so abundant that utopia simply had to follow. Um, and that's, you know, it's nice that people were having those thoughts, even if it clearly <laughs> didn't pan out. Must uh, be nice to be so optimistic about your future. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and part of that research involved using x-rays, you know, the same wavelength of radiation that we now use for imaging our bones to try to induce helpful mutations in all kinds of plants, peanuts, for example. So radiation can break down the bonds that keep DNA together, causing Cancers, for example, when cells start reproducing out of control, uh, or something like radiation burns, for example, when those cells start dying. But DNA damage in sex cells can then get passed on to offspring, and that can result in like literally any kind of physiological change. If a gene can control it, radiation could change it. So the hope was that like x-ray some peanuts and maybe they'll make a better peanut. Um, so there was a lot of work going on on this in like the 1920s, but it was very much in its infancy. They didn't quite know what they were doing. But all of those rosy utopian avenues for using nuclear physics were put on hold so that the U.S. could make a terrible bomb, uh, which we did, thereby throwing the world into a horrific arms race that in many ways continues to this day. But meanwhile, Scientists did keep at least half an eye on the idea of radioactive plants, namely because some of the most brilliant scientists in the world were working on nuclear weapons, and they understood that radioactive fallout was going to fundamentally alter the ecosystem of any place they were testing or dropping bombs. And that is where we got gamma ray gardens, which is also just like <laughs> such a fun phrase. <laughs> and so this is where scientists would essentially just plunk a tube of radioactive material, it was usually the isotope um, cobalt-60, into the center of a field, often like five or six acres across. And then they would plant crops of various sorts in this kind of like pizza pie configuration of concentric circles. Mm. Um, 
Because the idea was that the plants really close to the center would get like a very high dose of radiation. Mm. Uh, And at the edge, they would be getting a very small dose of radiation. And then the ones in the middle got something in between. And so they were trying to figure out, you know, like how big of a dose uh, does a town have to get of radiation before we're concerned that like the plants aren't safe to eat, that plants are going to die. Um, eventually the isotope rod would just like get dropped into a bunker so that scientists could go out and check out the plants. Now, gamma rays have an even smaller wavelength than x-rays. You can only get to them after you split an atom and they'll shoot through basically anything. It takes layers and layers of shielding to stop them. So it won't surprise you to learn (laughs) that the plants right next to the radioactive core would just die. They, they were dead. (laughs) No preamble. Absolutely fried. Um, and then some of the closest ones to survive would grow tumors, um, because plants can get cancer too, uh, or they would just otherwise look pretty worse for wear. You wouldn't want to eat them or replant them. Um, again, understandable. Uh, but yeah, somewhere farther out in the circle, they noticed that you would start to see plants were like, they were like just a little different than what you thought you had planted. Um, maybe they were especially tall, maybe they were producing loads of fruit, uh, maybe their colors were strange, or like you were getting flowers with like multiple colors in each petal, just to name a few examples. And that became very interesting to the U.S. government during the Cold War, when we suddenly found ourselves trying to justify the fact that we basically invented a war crime in a bottle. Um, (laughs) They were... Suddenly, the U.S. government was very interested in going back to those sunny utopian narratives about the potential of nuclear energy. The government wanted to prove to its own citizens and to the world that actually there had been a real bright side to all of the nuclear weapons, and we were totally going to have radically better lives thanks to nuclear physics. We just had to crack the code. Yeah, we really need more crazy flowers. <laughs> I know. That's the best thing to come out of nuclear. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So there were a bunch of initiatives designed to, like, get nuclear physics into our everyday lives in a helpful and morally palatable fashion. And one of them was using those gamma gardens to create exciting and useful new plant varietals. Basically, research facilities would have the setup I described before, and they'd work on spotting any potentially useful adaptations that cropped up. Then they'd take that mutant plant and they try to improve on it. They might crossbreed it with something else or irradiate a second or third or fourth generation of it. Uh, And at each stage, they would be keeping some seeds and breeding those to get more so that when they found something really neat and useful or aesthetically pleasing, they could get those nuclear seeds out to the public. And they did. Um, Even folks without any interest in nuclear science probably interacted with some of these plants, and we still do today. Um, the Rio Star grapefruit, which is now very common, uh, is just one example. It was bred to have uh, very dark flesh and sweet juice. Um, also, the predominant varietal of Calrose rice was bred to be like a really good height to be um, harvested by combine uh, using a gamma garden. And in fact, most of the world's mint oil comes from a peppermint cultivar called Todd's Mitchum. I don't know why that's what the peppermint's called, but... Um, Sounds like an old-timey movie star. Yeah, Todd Mitchum. Todd's Mitchum. <laughs> the cool taste of Todd Mitchum. Um, <laughs> it's, resertant, it's resistant to certain fungi, uh, and it was bred at Brookhaven National Lab's Gamma Garden. 
there are more than 3,000 registered plant cultivars that got to be the way they are because of radiation. But some folks wanted to get a much closer look at this exciting new science. One of the most famous was an oral surgeon named C.J. Spees, uh, who turned a bunker in his backyard in Tennessee into a workshop where he shot seeds up with radiation. Um, And then he sold them across the world. And the idea was that it provided kind of a hint of the same mystery of the Gamma Garden without having to bury cobalt-60 in your own backyard because you are buying the irradiated seeds. You aren't buying like a a core of plutonium or something. But you didn't know what those seeds would turn into because like it's not like he had bred a bunch of plants to do specific things uh, and then was selling you the seeds. He was just like, I blasted these with radiation. (laughs) Have fun. Um, Good luck. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, you know, it's really looking back at catalogs. I think there were some that he sold because he had like perfected them to do a particular thing. But mostly what he was promising was like, what a mystery. Oh my gosh. And it was very clear, like, not every crop will be a miracle, but like, ooh, you never know what you might get. Um, I don't know. It reminds me of like a prize at the bottom of a cereal box. It's like the it's surprise just... flavored like Starburst um, right. or whatever. It's like, mm. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's also, there was a British woman named um, Muriel Howarth, who was also quite well known. Uh, she started the Atomic Gardening Society, which is what it sounds like. She basically wanted to popularize using these irradiated seeds. Um, she became CJ's like chief overseas distributor it said that like through her he sold millions of seeds in the uk uh but the atomic gardening society also did things like put on interpretive dance performances to explain how nuclear <gasps> oh physics gosh, works i, I have that. <gasps> yeah exactly <gasps> i have a brief description from time magazine in 1950 that i would love to read um Before a select audience of 250 rapt ladies and a dozen faintly bored gentlemen, some 13 (laughs) bosomy AE associates in flowing evening gowns gyrated gracefully about a stage in earnest imitation of atomic forces at work. An ample electron in black lace wound her way around two matrons labeled proton and neutron, while an elderly ginger-haired Geiger counter clicked out their radioactive effect on a pretty girl named Agriculture. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) At a climactic moment, a Mrs. Monica Davial raced across the stage in spirited representation of a rat eating radioactive cheese. Okay, are they still (laughs) taking members? Because I I want in. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel exactly the same way, Sarah Kylie. Do you, do you know about, um, dance your PhD? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's what this sounds like to me. That's <laughs> it. No, that is a great point. Uh, listeners definitely Google dance your PhD. It is basically, uh, PhD students doing this, uh, yes. <laughs> to explain their theses. Um, yeah, there's nothing quite like a, uh, male reporter in 1950 trying to describe women (laughs) (laughs) swaying it's very it's very they bosomed busily yeah exactly (laughs) gently gyrating (laughs) with their bosoms um and 
Yeah. So, so that's really all I have to say about her group. You can learn a lot more about her. I'll, I'll reference a couple of um, books and podcast episodes on popside.com slash weird. But just to give you a, a little taste of what this was like as a hobby, uh, because there were there were hobbyists who did it. I kind of, uh, before doing this research, was under the mistaken impression that hobbyists were like actually burying radioactive stuff in their backyard. Um, and that's not really the case. They were being smarter than all that. So um, now I have a newfound respect for them. They were just planting <laughs> funky seeds and having funky dance parties. So, like it sounds amazing. Absolutely. It's good. it's good to have hobbies. Yeah. Yeah. Bring the science into your own backyard. That's what Muriel was all about. Apparently, when she, before she started the society, um, and before she started kind of selling her own seeds, she had just gotten wind that this was happening and had bought seeds, I think from CJ, uh, for a peanut plant. And her initial kind of Um, introduction of the world of atomic gardening to her society friends was that she had a dinner party serving the mutant peanuts and she was like no one was excited (laughs) (laughs) she was just like no one understood why they should be excited about these peanuts so then she decided she just needed to um do some science communication to make people understand dance it out exactly yeah so This is actually still one mainstream method of getting new kinds of plants. Um, There are a few countries that still have like working gamma ray gardens uh, to find new mutations. But more targeted genetic engineering made gamma gardens pretty obsolete. Um, I mean, while proponents back in the mid 20th century talked about irradiation as if it jumpstarted the process of evolution, it actually only jumpstarts the process of mutation. And yes, a lot of the ways that an organism evolves comes down to random DNA mutations that happen to be useful and they stick around, they become ubiquitous in the species and the species changes. But evolution is only able to happen that way because so many mutations happen and most of them are just useless. Some of them are harmful. Radiation doesn't make evolution happen faster because the natural selection of beneficial mutations is what actually changes a species. But the mutation just changes one organism. So they kind of thought they were like putting it on a fast track to being its best self. And they were really just kind of speeding up the process of like, "Ah, (laughs) anything can happen. (laughs) Um. Which is life. That is the process of reproduction in life. And they made it happen very quickly. But it also required a lot of sorting through those changes and trying to figure out what was good or bad about them. Um, And with modern genetic engineering, well, of course, there is still some trial and error involved. um, And there are species we know way less about than others at the genetic level. Scientists are at least attempting to make genetic tweaks based on like what those genes are known to influence. So uh, it is much less scattershot. Um, But yeah, no, there are still lots of varietals we interact with all the time that came from this method. And there are places where uh, this is still being done. Um, Though, unfortunately, with less modern dance involved. (laughs) We should change that. Yeah. I mean, you know, we could. Maybe Maybe I'll bring it back. (laughs) <laughs> i want to be the giger counter yeah <laughs> i want to be 
the pretty girl called agriculture. That's <laughs> yeah, pretty girl called agriculture. I just don't want to be the matron that's an electron. Like that's that's, that's, that's my not other thought. Nice. Reading that time right up is like they did a lot of unnecessarily labeling some people as matrons and some people as bosomy young ladies. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back with some more facts. Okay, we're back. And uh, Sarah Kylie, tell me about teen angst in dogs. Oh, yeah. I am very excited to talk about this. So um, as we all know, everyone has been a teenager once. Um, or if you're like nine and listening to this, it's coming for you. Um, but we've... <laughs> no, no, Liam! <laughs> <laughs> But basically, um, we've all seen the high or lows of um, pubescence, and everything is very dramatic. And if you've got siblings, kids, or teens in your life, um, that melodramatic attitude sometimes comes out into the rest of the world and affects everybody. Um, So during teenagership, a whole bunch of things are happening in the human brain, and we'll get to the dog brain in just a little bit. But um, it typically lasts from around eight or nine until our 20s is what is pubescence. Um, First of all, it's the largest change in the brain since infantdom. And the brain is developing really quickly and increasing in brain matter, which means those teeny bopper brains are gaining some serious processing power. And so um, according to Sarah Johnson, who is an assistant professor at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, um, by adolescence, teens' brains have computational and decision-making skills of an adult. So you've got all the hardware, um, but (laughs) they tend to be influenced by emotions versus rationality. And that's thanks to the limbic system, which is the emotional part of our brain, having more power at this time than the prefrontal cortex. And the limbic system's development gives way for all kinds of new emotions like aggression and sexual attraction and all of that delightful, fun stuff of being a teenager. Um, and on top of I just turned 30 and I'm still waiting to become rational. <laughs> I just... Yeah. I thought, it, I thought 25, I was legally allowed to rent a car. I was going to... No. Yeah. I'm still just still just rage and sadness. <laughs> but that's okay. Oh yeah, I still still definitely have questions about um when my when my teenage years are gonna end now at twenty six. But um so yeah, and so on top of like all of the drama that's just happening in the brain, um the breaks come online somewhat later than the accelerator of the brain is what Johnson said in an article a couple of years mm. ago. And so enter <laughs> uh, risky choices and impulsiveness. Yay. Um, hormonal effects like the rise of receptors for oxytocin, which can manifest in the ways of self-consciousness, also come into play. So to outsiders, teens often look self-centered or overly idealistic. And unsurprisingly, if you are a parent or, again, have a teen in your life, um, this era adds a lot of strain on parental relationships with their teens. Shocker. Um, And teens with more insecure relationships with their parents also tend to start puberty earlier. So... If you already are having drama with your parents, you might start puberty earlier. So throwing that out there, and there's been some research on that. But until fairly recently, there's not been a whole lot of proof that other animals that aren't human undergo some of the like parentally mind-boggling teen drama that humans do. Um, some animals come close. So 
elephants have an angst, angsty teen phase where they're growing up um, when they're in their like elephant 20s, which is kind of the, you know, equivalent to teen <laughs> years for us. Um, the male elephants will ditch their moms to hang out in like little crews of rambunctious other teen elephants. Um, <laughs> it's not a phase, mom. It's not a phase, mom. <laughs> and male dolphins also do this. So they'll like, you know, bounce around with their other crews of like teenage prime dolphins. So like... <laughs> If that tells you anything. And then um, this is another fun um, adolescent animal fact, but um, adolescent mice um, given to peer pressure and can be kind of party animals. Uh, in the presence of peers, adolescent mice drink more ethanol spiked water than when they were alone. Um, <laughs> but the same results were not found in adults. So um, drunk mice. Uh, moving on. Uh, so for, perhaps unsurprisingly, um, kind of anecdotally, we've seen acts of teenage defiance in our favorite pets um there's lots of anecdotes online of teenage pups doing angsty stuff um one dog blog that i found um fido savvy broke this down in a couple of really delightful ways um so um your dog suddenly develops selective hearing he only hears what he wants to um he forgets quote unquote how to follow simple commands that he learned months ago um, concentration and focus become a problem. Potty accidents occasionally happen, even though they've been reliable for ages. Like, they just start peeing on things. Um, quote, bratty behavior increases, including nipping, biting, barking, and jumping. And um, Fido suddenly gets bossy with other dogs, pets, children, or even adults. So... There's always been kind of like this at it's like, I think six to nine months, dogs just start acting up a little bit. And of course, most of these puberty doggy nightmares are just people talking to each other. Um, but in 2020, someone actually did a study about teen angst and dogs, which love that. Um, and what they found is that they had <laughs> shockingly similar dramatic changes in attitude, especially towards their human parents. So obviously, by this point, your dog's like, you know, it kind of looks like an adult dog, but now it's just acting like a sassy dog. Um, so a, br a bunch of British researchers worked with the charity guide dogs to see if around doggy puberty, um, you know, six to nine months, um, if there were substantial behavioral differences, and there were. So the team took two different groups of puppies. Um, there were German Shepherds, Golden Retrievers, Labs, or crosses of these breeds. So, you know, like... Working dogs, um, the first group was about five months old, still in their bouncy baby phase where their human parents are the light of their lives, um, much like <laughs> kids before hormones start running amok. Um, and the second group was at eight months, which is a peak of potentially grouchy teen angst era, is what I'd like to call it. Um, and so they took these two teams of dogs and they did the classic sit command with um, uh, the parents and then with like an outsider. And so at five months, pups pr respond really well to their parents telling them to sit and they're not really great at listening to strangers. But by eight months, this reverses. A teenage pup will gladly sit when some random person asks, but when mom or dad um, asks, it's they're angsty about it. Um, so <laughs> the lead author, um, Lucy Asher, told The Guardian right when this came out, they're nearly twice as likely to ignore the sit command when they're eight months old as when they're five months. So wow. if, if your dog's like forgotten how to sit, um, this might be why. Um, so and additionally, Asher suggests that dogs with less secure bonds, like clingy dogs um, and their parents, they might play up a little bit more to test out the strength. Um, so in dogs, what that means um, is the animal is going back and forth on whether to hang out with mom forever or follow its teenage horniness and reproductive urge to go find a doggy boyfriend or girlfriend and make puppies, which, you know, 
sounds kind of familiar. Um, <laughs> so the researchers, they did the sit thing, and then they also took it a step further by polling hundreds of dog owners. And what they saw is that in a group of 285 dogs, a drop in trainability was reported by pup parents when the dogs are between five and eight months old. However, dog trainers, like actual trainers, didn't see the same thing, likely because these, you know, trained professionals aren't as one-on-one familiar with the teenage dogs themselves, so they're less likely to act rebelliously towards them, but they're like, heck you, mom, um, when they're like eight months old. (laughs) So they do know how to sit, they just won't do it for mom. Um, And on top of that, (laughs) signs of separation anxiety started popping up around eight months, um, like shaking when they're home alone, and female dogs with insecure relationship with their people parents um, started puberty earlier than their peers, kind of in a way that mimics what happens with humans. So Naomi Harvey, another author of this study, said that many many dog owners and professionals have long known or suspected that dog behavior can become more difficult when they go through puberty. But until now, there's been no empirical record of this. A result show that behavior changes seen in dogs closely parallel that of a child-parent relationship. As dog owner conflict is specific to the dog's primary caregiver, and just as with human teenagers, this is just a passing phase. So... Fun stuff. And funnily enough, there's even more research out there that shows how human brains are kind of wired similarly to think about their dogs and their kids. So one study um, showed that when women were shown pictures of their own dogs, their own kids, and then random dogs or kids, uh, women seeing their own kid or pup ignited some of the same parts of the brain. So the part of the brains that were ignited with both baby and my doggy, but not other people's dogs or other people's babies, like the amygdala, the medial orbofrontal cortex, and the dorsal putamen, putamen, I don't know. So parts of the brain that are um, involved in emotion and reward processing. So unsurprisingly, um, there's also parts that the babies got that dogs didn't get because they are, you know, our offspring. And I guess there's some parts that are saved for human babies that we won't feel when we look at dogs. (laughs) Um, But still, um, be it a loved, if it's a loved one and it's either furry or human, we get get a similarly loved up response. Um, The authors of this study wrote, these results demonstrate that the mother-child and mother-dog bonds share aspects of emotional experience and patterns of brain function. So if people are like, I'm a dog mom, they are a dog mom. Um, (laughs) And the big difference, other than, of course, that dogs (laughs) are dogs and babies are babies, um, is that we can theoretically... it's, it pains me to think about it, but giving up your dogs if they're going through this. And that's, you can't, you know, give up your teen for adoption if they're driving you crazy. You're kind of stuck with them. But um, folks do have the ability to rehome their dogs if they start acting out of control, even if it's just their hormones making them a little grumpier than usual. But um, so that's the kind of point of all of this research is that it's a crucial reminder that this phase will end. Like if you have an eight month old puppy and it's just acting strange. Just it's okay. It's gonna it's a it's gonna end. Um, and keep loving on your pups and training them and being nice and doing your best like you would with a grumpy teenager. And maybe sign up for some socialization or obedience classes. But at the end of the day, um, always give your your dog and your teen some love um, because they are going through it apparently. So and that's all all I know about doggy. Ask your dog what they're interested in. Yeah. Play some Fortnite with them. Play some Fortnite with the puppies. There's actually a doggy daycare near my house. I don't have a dog. I wish I did. Um, but my 16-year-old cat would um, – oh. uh, she would just 
laid out and die. So <laughs> not going to do that to her. But uh, there is a dog daycare near me that is just um, their whole shtick is that it is designed to look like a fancy living room. It Ooh. has like fireplaces Ooh. and like chaise lounges and the dogs just sit around having like business meetings together. That's amazing. Really cute. That's really anyway, cute. Um, my favorite I, my favorite bar is like that. It's like a living room. <laughs> Fancy grandma's <laughs> living room. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with one more fact. Okay, we're back. And uh, Lee, let's talk about pain. Yes, let's talk about pain. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So today I want to talk about the subjective nature of pain. Um, There's a common misconception that like there is a linear relationship between like the sensation on your skin and what your brain does. There's also like no way for me to put your brain into a scanner and know exactly how much pain you're in. At least at this point, we can't do it. Um, It turns out it's really chaotic and pain is always cooked up fresh by your brain, like every time. And it depends on what you're doing. It depends on your emotional state, arousal, inner life, expectations. All of this comes together to output a painful sensation. And there is this incredible story that I'm going to tell that is absolutely true. And I think that it demonstrates this beautifully. So we start with Dr. Lormore Mosley. He is a researcher at Neuroscience Research Australia, and he's also an avid hiker. So our Dr. Mosley is hiking in the bush, which he does all the time. and. He's just kind of trekking along. His legs are exposed. He's having a great day. It's beautiful, hiking, all of that stuff. He feels something on the outside of his leg. And when you feel a sensation on your skin, your nociceptors, like the signal from your nociceptors, zip up the nerve (laughs) into the spine and go up to the brain where your brain has to figure out what is happening. So in this moment, he feels something on his leg and his brain is just like, okay, okay, cool. Well, I mean, like, we are hiking and um, it's probably like a stick. I think it's a stick. I think it's a stick. We're hiking. Bare legs is totally a stick. Uh, Cool. Keep going. No big deal. No big deal. (laughs) And so he just like keeps walking. It's just like, you're right. No big deal. I am hiking. Um. And he gets into the water for a little dip, and he's just like, oh, swimming and hiking, swimming That does sound like a great day. Right? It's just like chilling, having the time of his life, just like out there in nature, feeling it out. He gets out of the water, collapses on the beach, and almost dies. Drama. (laughs) I I bet that was not a stick. It was not a (laughs) stick, my friends. It was one of the most venomous snakes in the entire world. The eastern brown snake. Oh, good. Oh, my gosh. I, so it usually kills people, right? He survives. And the crazy thing is that the venom from that snake causes a lot of nociceptive like noise, like screaming. Mm. It is activating nerve fibers. But since his brain was like absolutely convinced that he was fine, 
his brain was just like, pss, 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 no, I do. I reject this input. We are on a hike <laughs> and that's what we're doing. So complete, he almost dies and miraculously he recovers. Six months later, he's hiking again. And this time he's with some friends and his legs are bare and, you know, it's same old thing. Hiking, hiking, beautiful day, hanging out. And he feels something on the outside of his leg. And his brain immediately <laughs> drops his ass like a bag of hammers, like 10-10 agony, screaming in pain. <laughs> the worst pain he has ever felt in his whole life. His friends are like, holy shit. And he's just like writhing and screaming in agony <laughs> on the ground. No. Except that time, it was a stick. Oh, my God. <laughs> right? Like his Yes. So his brain was just like, oh, shit, I did f- this up last time. And so to err on the side of caution, I'm going to make sure that you do not miss this alarm and that you pay attention to this sensation on your leg. And I'm going to absolutely <laughs> put you through hell, like full Cenobite, full torture, just like the worst pain. He Let me see it. He described it as a white hot poker pain screaming up my leg and both of those sensations were real like there's this like when people say like oh pain is all in your head blah 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 to as like a derogatory thing like it is Mm. true that pain is all in your head but like that does not make it any less real ever everything we experience is all in our head me talking to you right now is all in my head uh me perceiving the little boxes on my screen all in my head uh (laughs) <laughs> so I don't like it when people try to like poo-poo pain is like, oh, well, you could just like get through it because it's not really real and blah, 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 blah. Because it is real. It's very real. It's just like so enormously subjective. And um, this reminds me of uh, one of the worst things that I did for my book research. Uh, I ate the hottest pepper in I remember the seeing your video of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It didn't, didn't look fun to me. <laughs> I, it, you know what? It wasn't. It was not fun, Rachel. <laughs> it was not fun at all. I And the crazy thing about that is, so like, at this point, when I decided to eat the pepper, uh, which, spoilers, was one of the most painful things I've ever done, and I have done and experienced a lot of painful things, both consensually and non- the the hot pepper pain was like, I didn't know how I was going to explain it. Because it literally felt like someone just poured molten lava into my mouth. Like, I thought I was dying. If I didn't know what was happening, I would have, like, immediately gone to the hospital and possibly tried to cut my own tongue out. Like, there was no, like, it, it was, I'd been, like, speechless. I did it again, by the way, but, uh, oh my god. So... I learned nothing. Um, and sure. actually, it just makes you so high afterwards <laughs> that you're just like, oh, my God, I will absolutely do this again. I am oh completely untethered from reality and drifting through space. <laughs> I, so I grew my own peppers and I did it again. But in that moment with that pepper, I knew that capsaicin, the molecule in peppers, is a heat mimic. It's not... It doesn't interact with your taste receptors. It interacts with your temperature receptors. And it makes them just scream. Um, And I knew I wasn't actually in danger. 
And I knew the story of Dr. Mosley and how pain is always subjective and how his own experience of excruciating pain um, came from a situation where there was like actually no danger. And yet he was in agony. And I really, I was so cocky. I really felt like I can handle this because I know it's not real. And because my brain, my conscious brain knows that I'm not in danger, I'm going to be such a badass. I'm going to eat the world's hottest pepper and it's going to be amazing. And I'm going to talk through it on camera and make a cute little video. Um, And none of that happened. I just cried and snotted on myself and tried to crawl (laughs) out of my seat. And I got it in my eye. And I'm Uh -uh. just like, Uh -uh. I am alone in a rental car in a parking lot in California, eating this pepper by myself. I didn't bring a milkshake. I didn't bring anything. I really thought that since pain is subjective, I got this. (laughs) And I absolutely did not got this. I thought I was going to die. I was just like weeping and crying and gagging and just like drool soaked the front of my shirt. And even in that moment, I knew I wasn't in danger and there wasn't anything I could do about it. There wasn't any way to get off the ride. My nociceptors were just like <laughs> screaming, fuck you as loudly as possible. It's like unrelenting shrieking noises. I felt it in my ear canals. I felt it like in every part of my face. I got it in my eye. I felt like I was dying. And eventually, and I just fought, I fought like hell, right? Because like I knew that pain was subjective and I was just like, Lorimer Mosley got a stick on his leg and he was fine. It's okay. I am fine. I am fine. I am fine. I am fine. And eventually I just had to be like, oh, you were so stupid, Lee. You were so stupid. You were so stupid. And the only thing that you can do in this moment is to surrender and just take the ride. Yeah, just be in pain. Uh Uh-huh. And I... I got, I, it made me, I was just like, okay, well, we'll do it. If we can't do it, the like logic, uh, you know, Vulcan way of like understanding that like, mm-hmm. it's not real and I am in control. I just decided that I was like, well, it's my pain cave and I'm going to stay in it. Ha ha ha. So I was just like a little gremlin in my car. Just like, yeah, take it, take it, take it. <laughs> oh man. I am. Um... <laughs> coincidentally uh it was my my birthday a few days ago and my mom um loves to retell uh every year my mom um was used to be an OBGYN and she loves to tell the story of how um because she had had the experience of being catheterized before and had placed many catheters she was like, I know what this feels like and I know how to do it. I'm going to insert my own catheter. Uh-uh. <laughs> and, uh-uh. Nope. And, uh, oh, my God. She uh, doing it herself was just really different. And she says she immediately stood up and walked out to a nurse who was her colleague and friend and said, if you don't get this thing out of me right now I'm not having a baby because I will kill myself and they were like okay, I'm, I'm okay, sure she okay, meant okay, it okay. so oh, anyway man. I almost didn't exist because my mom <laughs> insisted on inserting her own catheter but it all worked out in the end 
Like oh I'm like God. sweating over here hearing this story. I was stressing yeah. me out. I am oh also Lord. sweating. Just reliving it has given me the swamp armpits. <laughs> like I feel sweat like dripping down the sides of my body. Um, Have you seen the video the of um, Lord eating the spicy hot wings with like no no emotion? Like there's, <laughs> so there's like a like it's a weird like celebrity eating hot wings. Right. Whatever. Mm-hmm. I feel like I, I see gifts from that show and I've never actually. I've never seen, seen a full thing itself. from it, but the yeah, Lord just them. like sits there and it's like mm, delicious. <laughs> my my partner uh, absolutely terrified me because I grew Reaper peppers to like have this like kind of psychedelic pain experience with them, and I filmed it, and uh, they'd never eaten a Reaper pepper before, but I had. So again, again, I'm cocky in a situation where I absolutely <laughs> ate shit. Um, <laughs> And I go to watch the video afterwards and my partner ate the pepper and like gave like a really dignified like (coughs) (laughs) and then they folded their legs, crossed their arms and closed their eyes. Like, but what I've I've seen so many pepper eating competitions and they were just like. Yeah, I did a lot of psychedelics when I was younger. And um, when you're tripping too hard, you really can't fight it. And it kind of felt like that. And I'm like, yeah, I know that logically. But <laughs> I've, I've never, like, before or since seen anyone just kind of, like, meditate through a Carolina Reaper pepper experience. Have they um, considered going on the competitive circuit? <laughs> right? I, I think, think they... I, I think their bowels are too precious. That's really fair. Oh. Whenever I watch the hot pepper competition, I mean, there was um that great show, uh, We Are the Champions. That was like, <gasps> yes, I, I love that. I love that show. And the episode about hot peppers, uh, I thought was really well done. But yes, watching the competitors, I was like, I don't judge them for loving this. I do worry about their poops. <laughs> like, it's, oh my god, you have fun. to puke. Yeah, you have to puke afterwards. Otherwise. You get the capsaicin cramps. And I think that's the real thing that keeps my partner off the circuit is that once they, um, we did do a hot wing eating competition, which they won, unsurprisingly. Um, this is before the Reaper Pepper happened. I'm surprised they even tried it. Uh, oh, full disclosure, I spit out my Reaper Peppers. I just do it in my mouth mm. and then I spit it out because I love my ass too much yeah. to like put it through something like that like I want to stay friends with my sphincters forever <laughs> forever um and they got the cap cramps and um it was like as close to unendurable agony that like you could be without like like they were like I think I need to like bang my head unconscious like I cannot handle this and like they oh weren't in any danger right um you just had to wait through it because, again, it's like it's a mimic. It's only dangerous if you're allergic to it, which is like less than one percent of people. Um, but yeah, so if you if you do want to experience the absolute agony, like if you want to fight God and then feel <laughs> like one, chew and spit the pepper. You'll have like thirty to forty minutes of the worst pain in your face that you ever thought po- beyond what you thought possible, and then afterwards. You will be so ludicrously high that you will forget how bad it was and you will probably do it again. And you can do <laughs> it with the knowledge that your whole experience 
is subjective and cooked up fresh by your poor brain, just trapped up there in the dark, just shimmering with electricity, trying to figure out why you are dying. That's beautiful. (laughs) Yep. Stunning. Love it. Well, what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? Uh, I think Lee wins it easily. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) A wild ride from start to finish. Uh, And also, I think, um, a great argument for buying hurts so good. Thank you. So (laughs) you can read all about it. (laughs) And I narrate the audiobook. So if you want to hear me tell you exactly how bad it was to eat that pepper (laughs) in grueling detail, uh, you can have that experience for yourself. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us, Lee. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so fun. All right, listeners. And that is a wrap on season five of The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, which is just absolutely wild. Um, We are so grateful to you all, uh, new listeners, people who have been with us since way back in the beginning. We will definitely be back in your feed really soon. Season six is not too far away, and we will definitely have some fun bonus content dropping in in the meantime. You should also join our Facebook group. You can find it by searching Weirdest Thing on Facebook. It's a great place to meet other fans of the podcast, share weird stories, just get weird. It's it's great. And keep an eye out for our sister show, Ask Us Anything, which will be coming back to your feeds really shortly. Okay. Thanks for listening, weirdos. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other weirdos find the show. For more information on the stories you heard in this episode, come find us at popsi.com slash weird. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popsi.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, with editing and audio engineering by Jess Bodie. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos.